Today we are beginning a study of the parables which Jesus spoke in Matthew chapter 13. These simple stories are quite well known, even among people who do not believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Many people treat them the same way they would treat the fables of Aesop or the fairy tales of Hans Christian Andersen. But Jesus' parables in Matthew chapter 13 are so much more than mere morality tales. The Lord was teaching important truths about the coming of his kingdom, as well as helping his disciples to understand their responsibilities during the time period between his first coming and his glorious return. Our goal in this study will be to carefully examine the text to see exactly what Jesus says and then to determine what message he wanted his disciples and us to understand from these important parables. As with any study of the scriptures, one of the most important principles is to determine the context for the passage being examined. This is especially important when studying the parables of Matthew 13. With that in mind, let's begin our study of this chapter. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, we read, That day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea. The first two words of this verse immediately prompt us to ask, Which day was that day? In order to answer this question, we need to look back at the previous chapters in order to understand what had taken place. Let's begin by briefly surveying what has happened so far in Matthew's narrative of the life of Jesus. In the first two chapters of Matthew, we see his royal genealogy, his remarkable birth, and his early life. In chapter 3, we see John the Baptist announcing the coming of the Messiah, then baptizing Jesus in the Jordan River and proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 3, verse 2. But there was opposition to John's message, and he was put in prison. Jesus then began his public ministry to the nation of Israel in chapter 4, where he taught in their synagogues, called his first disciples, miraculously healed many people, and proclaimed the same message which John the Baptist had declared, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. The kingdom being proclaimed was the same one that the Jewish people were already familiar with from the Old Testament scriptures. They knew their history. And they understood that God had brought the theocratic kingdom to an end, that God's Shekinah glory had departed, and that God had judged his people by scattering them among the nations. The future restoration of the kingdom and the promised fulfillment of God's covenants with the nation of Israel was proclaimed by nearly every Old Testament prophet. You can find a list of these prophetic passages in the study notes for this session. This kingdom is the one that the Jews were anticipating and which Jesus declared was at hand. As one commentator has said, the promise of the kingdom could not be disassociated from the presence of the king. A kingdom demands a king. 
This was a well-known fact which gave to Israel the confident expectation of their Messiah's coming. Here it was not that the kingdom had come, but rather that the king was present to offer his kingdom. Now, notice that Jesus did not say, the kingdom of heaven has been established. In essence, his message was, the king is here, and it would be possible for him to establish the kingdom if the nation of Israel would meet the condition for its inauguration. That condition was given in the announcement by both John and Jesus when they said, Repent. Not only must Israel recognize Jesus as the king chosen by God, which is an important criteria from Deuteronomy 17 verse 15, but they must also meet the spiritual requirements for national repentance and personal holiness that were clearly stated in their scriptures. With this in mind, we see in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 that Jesus taught principles of kingdom ethics in what is commonly called the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Jesus then authenticated his Messiahship by performing miracles of healing, casting out demons, calming the wind and the waves during a storm on the Sea of Galilee, restoring a dead girl to life, and giving sight to the blind. Now, it was at this time that Matthew started reporting direct opposition to Jesus from the Pharisees and religious leaders of Israel. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissioned his 12 disciples to travel throughout the nation, preaching the nearness of the kingdom, but only to the lost sheep of Israel. Matthew 11 recorded that messengers from John the Baptist arrived with a question, and after answering them, Jesus gave an eloquent affirmation of John and his ministry. He also referred to his own rejection by the leaders of Israel in verses 16 through 19, and he condemned the unrepentant cities of Israel in which he ministered. One commentator said that the high ethical standards of the kingdom did not appeal to the Jewish people. In general, the Jewish people rejected Jesus, though many individuals became his followers. Because of this, Jesus turned to the individual rather than the nation as a whole, inviting each person to come to him and find rest. And we see that in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Now, this brings us up to that day, which is mentioned in the first verse of Matthew chapter 13. Some commentators have called this the busy day because so many events are recorded as taking place on that specific Sabbath day. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, Jesus and his disciples were walking through a wheat field where the disciples picked some heads of grain to eat. The Pharisees immediately accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus skillfully defended their actions, and he even ended by proclaiming himself to be Lord of the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 through 14, Jesus taught in their synagogue where the Pharisees set up a situation to accuse him. 
After establishing that it was perfectly lawful to do good on the Sabbath, Jesus healed a man with a withered hand. But the Pharisees immediately began plotting how they would destroy Jesus. At this point, the nation's religious leaders had completely rejected him and his well-attested claims to be their Messiah and King. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 15 through 21, Jesus withdrew from that synagogue because he knew what they were planning. But many people followed him, and he healed those who were sick. His withdrawal from that developing conflict was in fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4, which confirmed Jesus as the one chosen by God. His fulfillment of this prophecy also hints at the coming time when the Gentile nations will put their hope in him. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 32, a demon-possessed man is brought to Jesus, and we can imagine the Pharisees crowding around to see whether Jesus would again violate their Sabbath rules by healing him. Earlier that day, Jesus had proved that it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath, so he immediately healed the man. The crowds were amazed, but the Pharisees accused him of being in league with Satan. Jesus soundly refuted that charge, but it became clear that the religious leaders of Israel were guilty of the unforgivable sin against the Holy Spirit. There was no going back. The nation's leaders had completely rejected Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 through 37, Jesus condemned their hardened unbelief and depravity. When the Pharisees attempted to get control of the situation by demanding a sign, as recorded in Matthew 12, verses 38 through 42, Jesus refused to give them anything further except the sign of Jonah. Not only did this prefigure the rejected king's death, burial, and resurrection, but Jesus declared that that generation of unbelieving Israelites would be condemned by Gentiles at the future judgment. He said the repentant people of both Nineveh and Sheba will rise up and condemn the unrepentant Israelites of that generation. The sign of Jonah also includes the concept of postponement. In the case of Nineveh, their repentance led God to postpone his judgment on Assyria for 150 years. In the case of the nation of Israel, their rejection of their king led to the postponement of his kingdom, which is still yet to be realized. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, Jesus illustrated the condition of those Jews when he spoke of his purifying presence among them, warning them that unless Israel would fill the clean space with belief in their Messiah, their condition was going to be worse than before. Around this time, Jesus and his disciples entered a nearby house, in Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50, Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, but he aligned himself with the family of faith rather than with earthly family ties. 
We saw earlier in Matthew's account that the nearness of the kingdom had been proclaimed to the nation of Israel, first by John the Baptist, then by Jesus, and then by the twelve apostles in chapter 10, verse 7. But from this point forward, the nearness of the kingdom is never mentioned again in the Gospels. Israel had rejected the king and his kingdom. The consequence of their rejection is that the prophesied kingdom would be postponed. As Jesus would later declare on his final journey to the cross, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling." Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. Because of their rejection, the kingdom would not be instituted until a future time when the nation of Israel would recognize its Messiah and willingly meet the spiritual conditions for the establishment of that kingdom. As we reflect on the first two words of Matthew chapter 13, verse 1, we can see that the significant events which happened on that day are going to impact everything Jesus will say in the verses which follow. If we look at the end of this chapter, we notice in verse 53 that all of this teaching took place on that same day. So toward the end of that busy day, Jesus left the house and walked to the seaside where he sat down. In Matthew 13, verse 2, we read, And large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. With so many people jostling to get close to him, Jesus stepped into a boat, leaving the whole crowd standing along the shoreline. It's likely that some of Jesus' disciples were with him in the boat, which was probably one of the larger fishing vessels belonging to Peter and Andrew or to the sons of Zebedee. Since Jesus sat down in the boat to teach, he likely would have needed help to keep the boat from drifting so that he could concentrate on addressing the people on the beach. In Matthew chapter 13, the first part of verse 3, we see, And he spoke many things to them in parables. This is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that we see the word parable. It's the Greek word parabole which means the placing of one thing beside another for the purpose of comparison to illustrate a spiritual or moral truth. One Jewish Christian scholar has said, perhaps no other mode of teaching was so common among the Jews as that of parables. Only in their case, they were almost entirely illustrations of what had been clearly said or taught while in the case of Christ, they served as the foundation for his teaching. So the way Jesus used parables was quite different from the traditional or typical way that the Jewish rabbis taught them. One Bible scholar observed that a parable is an utterance which does not carry its meaning on the surface and which demands thought 
and perception if the hearer is to benefit from it. Far from giving explanations, parables themselves need to be explained. So this is an important fact to keep in mind as we study the parables of Jesus. If we look through the Gospel of Matthew, we see that earlier Jesus had shared several illustrations from nature and common life experience. These illustrations mainly occur in the Sermon on the Mount, and they include the salt and the light, the birds and the lilies, the splinter and the beam in the eye, the two gates, the wolves in sheep's clothing, the good and bad trees, and the wise and foolish builders. One commentator has said the Sermon on the Mount discourse was not by any means lacking in illustration. Still, its main lines of thought were of the nature of direct spiritual instruction. But here in Matthew 13, there is no direct spiritual teaching. It is all indirect. It is parabolic through and through. So this tells us that there was a distinct change in the way Jesus began using parables to teach the multitudes. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus will proceed to tell four parables to the mixed multitude, but he will not interpret the meaning of any of them for the crowd. Then privately, Jesus will tell only his disciples the correct interpretation for two of the parables that he gave the multitude, and he will tell four additional parables only to his disciples. As was mentioned previously, in verse 53 we see that all of this teaching took place on that same day, so all of these parables should be viewed together as a unit. One Bible scholar provided a valuable insight into this group of parables. He said, What Matthew 13 provides is a cluster of eight parables, with some, the first two, interpreted by Jesus, and some stated without interpretation. Furthermore, the first and last parables serve as bookends to identify the general ideas of the entire cluster, and to tie the cluster to the ongoing argument of the entire book of Matthew, taking into account the rejection of Jesus by the leaders of Israel and the subsequent development of something new in the transition from the focus on the Jews to the focus on Gentiles. The middle six parables flesh out more details with respect to these general themes. Jesus treats them all together seemingly as a unit. Consequently, one must study its connection to the others within the scheme of the whole. I think that's an excellent approach. And that's the approach that we will take in future sessions as we examine the parables in order to determine their message. In essence, Jesus' parables will reveal some of the important characteristics of the intervening time period between Israel's rejection of her king and their future acceptance of him. These prophetic glimpses into the future are conveyed in pictures, and we will see how this new teaching method puzzled Jesus' disciples. In the next session, we will look at Jesus' answer to the disciples' question about this change in teaching style 
and he will explain why he began to use parables when talking to the people of Israel. Let's close in prayer. Lord, we pray that as we begin this study of your parables of the kingdom, that you will open our eyes so that we can clearly understand your message. Thank you for the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives that illuminates your word. We ask for your help as we dedicate this time of study to you. Amen.